Welcome to the False Neutral Podcast. This is episode 102 for June 2020. We have a guest this month. Eric is with me. Garrett is not, unfortunately. But we do have Ross Ballett from our sister podcast in the Universe Podcast Network, the Leviathan of podcasting content. Why don't you tell us about yourself and tell us a little bit about your podcast? Sure. Well, thank you guys for having me. So my name's Ross. I write for Hooniverse and uh, a couple other places on the side occasionally, but mostly for Hooniverse. And I have recently started a podcast with my co-host, Chris Tracy, called Off the Road Again, which was brilliantly titled by one of our commenters on Hooniverse. And we basically meander and tangent through the world of four-wheel drive for about an hour every week. So Chris is middle of the country and is a, a Toyota, he's a Land Cruiser and Forerunner guy and newly a Sequoia owner. And I am a mostly Jeep and Toyota off-road guy and then even more so and primarily so an ATV guy and have a fair amount of side-by-side experience too, but it's mostly on quads. So... And I, I have to say, I've, I've been listening to you guys since you started. And even though I'm not really a, a big off-roader, uh, you guys are very interesting to listen to. I especially Thank like you. it because your uh, co-host is local to me. Yes. And I haven't met Chris. And I feel bad that we're in the same city. And uh, he's been doing this with Hooniverse <laughs> for a year or two now. Yeah. And- and I feel I, like you guys have discussed it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I even have a group of local people from Hooniverse that we do lunch every once in a while. Obviously, we haven't done it this spring at all. But, a little tough. Uh, yeah. But I need to get together with him. I, I really enjoyed your last podcast when you were talking about... Thank you. He, or he was talking about the Flint Hills. Uh, my wife's family uh, is from the Flint Hills, and I've spent a lot of time down there. And... If you are not from the middle of the country, you don't get it. You're like, why would anybody go someplace without any trees? But it truly is a really spectacularly beautiful, wide expanse of rolling hills with rock breaks in it. It, It's a really, really neat area of the country. And there's a really good motorcycling uh, event that happens in uh, a little town called Cassidy, Kansas, which is like, I think, 64 people. Man. Once a Town. month on Sunday, they have a motorcycle ride in for the little diner that's there that started, I don't know, probably 20 years ago. And they will have literally 5,000 motorcycles show up. Oh. And it's so like, the- and it's like locusts because they show up about, they start showing up about dawn and by noon, everybody's gone. So like people literally come for breakfast and they have um, in the street and stuff like that. But it's, it's just this little, phenomenon of there but the neat thing is it's really close to the designated scenic byway highway 177 that runs up through the flint hills to the tall grass prairie reserve that chris was talking about in your podcast last week mm-hmm. so uh uh it, it's a really beautiful drive so it yeah. looks beautiful and it, it i didn't know it existed until he brought it up last week or two weeks ago and we discussed it again this week and it, it's every time i look at pictures from a different angle or a different spot it kind of like notches higher on my must visit list because i did, truthfully had no clue it was there but it looks like the most serene calming place to be well it's kind of the uh uh a little bit more dynamic than dances with wolves but those scenes where he's out you know looking over the buffalo and you can see for miles that's what you that kind of feeling you get you have a little bit more visual interest because there's some you know more trees and valleys and stuff in there but uh it's very very cool well get yourself to kansas city and uh, chris and you and i'll have to go out and and do some exploring in the flint hills sounds good I would love to do so and maybe by then i'll have a motorcycle license and can rent something and we can go on an adventure and there are also some really nice riding roads that I don't tell people about because I don't want people <laughs> to know about. Keep them for yourself. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. I'm sworn to secrecy. Uh, Touche. We have but, the same thing here. But yeah, we're going to get into talking about ATVs and side-by-sides. But first, Eric, any 
uh, workshop update on the XS400? Small ones. Um, I spent a couple hours screaming at the cylinder head uh, the other day because every time I tried to get the valve keepers to stay <laughs> while I let the uh, uh, the valve spring compressor out, they didn't. Um, also, I realized that uh, the keepers that I had ordered uh, because a couple went missing when I took it apart. When you order four, that's not four pair. That's four halves. <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, I still had enough left over, I think, uh, that I have enough to, to put that back together. Um, so I got, so what, after about an hour and a half or two hours of that and uh, a great job of not throwing any object across said garage, uh, I walked <laughs> over. Yeah, it is. <laughs> More than you know. Uh, I walked over and then decided to, okay, well, let's take the old rings off and let's put the new rings on. And then, uh, then I needed to go find a, a piece of wire, which I had some safety wire so that I could like then pull the, excuse me, figure out how to pull the chain up so that I could slide the, um, cylinder down. And I didn't quite get that far, but I, I've got it set so that I can at least try to slide the, Cylinder over the pistons, uh, without a, uh, uh, a ring compressor to, to put it back in the cylinder. So, which I'll just, I need a second set of hands so that I can hold the rings and someone can slide it down. So, um, which may happen this weekend. We'll see. So slow, not, it's not, not near, but as I described to a friend of mine just before this, uh, before we started recording on text message, I've been as, I've been as motivated as a, as a, a union worker with a guaranteed government contract of late when, it, when every time I look at that motorcycle. So, um, yeah. Hey, any progress is progress. Yeah. Well, it's been, uh, as it popped up in my Facebook memories today, I keep saying, Oh, it's going to run. It's going to run. It's going to run. This is an ongoing thing for like, I don't know, the last six or seven years with this motorcycle. You know, it has a, has like a thousand, with the wombat. Yeah. Well, it's got like a thousand original miles on it. Um, Oh Yeah. Uh, the problem is it sat too long and it lost compression and it's been a nightmare. So yeah, it shouldn't be, but it is probably my own doing, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's my updates. How about you, Pete? Uh, working on the foot pegs and the foot pedals for Boltockenstein. And, um, I ordered a, uh, and that's, that's in progress, but, Proving to be a little bit more of a challenge than I expected it to be, but it, it's, it's working. And, uh, uh, on the Aramaki Ducati special, I ordered a ready to use, okay, good shape, use, uh, rear brake rotor off of eBay for, I don't know, 30 bucks or something. And it's, it's one they used, Suzuki used it on the, Bandit on a bunch of the katanas. It, it, it's fairly common. And I got it. The minimum thickness, the, the service limit on it is 5.5 millimeters. This the, was under 5.2 millimeters anywhere I measured it. And it looked like a uh, one of those three-dimensional topographical maps of the Rockies. Oh, what? And I was like, I, I contacted the guy. I'm like, I'm returning this. This is junk. This needs to be scrapped. He's like, no, no, send it back to me. I was like, oh, you're going to just sell it to somebody else, you jerk. So anyways, <laughs> I sent that back and I started thinking, it, there are certain things you just don't buy used. Used shocks, never a good idea. Used brake rotors, also I'm discovering not a good idea because anything that's in a salvage yard is by definition worn enough you don't want the brake rotors off it so i started looking for an ebc rear brake rotor and they run close to 100 bucks and i looked on amazon amazon had their stainless steel scalloped version from amazon this wasn't like a third party or anything 43 bucks prime (laughs) and i'm like hey one left, and I'm like, I am not going to ask any questions. I'm buying this now. It arrived. It was perfect. Still in the package. I have no idea why they were selling it for about sixty percent of retail price, but I, I bought it, and I've got Goodbye. it. And uh, I've got bolts on order for it. Awesome. Did I mention on the last podcast that uh, I bought a uh, a repop tank from India? I was going to say from China. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember yeah. you, you talking about that. The current estimated date of arrival is. 
August 31st or September 1st. So sometime around the 1st of September, I'm going to get that. And who knows whether it'll actually hold fuel or, you know, whether the pit it, will be on it, it. It literally is on the slow boat from China. Yeah, literally. <laughs> Indeed. Because I think it's going from India to China to here across the Pacific. So uh, I did get a... Thank that's seen the world. <laughs> I've... Uh, I got a carburetor just arrived today for Boltockenstein. I'm getting really close to tearing into the motor. I'm trying to make sure that I'm going to have everything I need. I haven't decided yet whether I'm going to send the crank to Garrett to have him do it or whether I'm going to try and do it myself or whether I'm going to just simply send it to a somebody who specializes in Boltaco motors. I don't know. So it's all up in the air, but... Uh, I did finish my, uh, I told you a long time ago that I was going to make a shop light out of a uh, FZ750 uh, valve cover. Mm-hmm. Just some left o- leftover uh, prototype stuff from work that you, uh, that was getting tossed that you used for that? No, actually I bought it from work. The big downward lights are from my employer, Peterson. They're designed for... Uh, mounting in the corners as cargo lights on either side of uh, uh, dry vans and reefers. But the ones pointing up, I actually bought off Amazon for like 10 bucks a piece. They're called LED bolts. And I actually have little spacers because I didn't have room for them, but you can actually flush mount them. I mean, they're, oh. they're just a, a, a little tiny dome, you know, they're eighth of an inch. Mm-hmm. You wanna, they're not bad. They're, they're, I'm guessing they're, Two or three hundred lumens a piece, but they're focused enough in one direction that uh, the whole thing worked worked, worked well. I, I should have cool. I should have cool used project. thinner wire. I was worried about uh, the weight, you know, since the those are actually the wires that are powering the the lights. I didn't. I wanted oh, nice big heavy wire. Well, they don't pull straight. <laughs> they're so right. big that they look a little wonky. But for what it is, um, and then the the stuff above it is just all leftover stuff from my parts box. I had some old grips and old. A kill switch I didn't use for my Honda project. So, did um, did you is that gold spray paint on the valve <laughs> yeah, cover? Yeah, that's metallic gold Krylon. It, it looks Krylon. good. I like it. It does look good. It's about three or four coats. It was pretty corroded, so I had it. I had sandblasted it once. I'd taken it over to a friend of my house and sandblasted it. I got into it, and for some reason, something happened with the paint, and I couldn't get the paint to look right. Um, I put a, one coat on it and it really looked bad. So I soda blasted it. And then I did, I think two or three really light kind of just not pass full, cuts. Yeah. yeah. Not even full coverage. Just kind of hit it, let it dry for a couple of days, hit it again, hit it again. And, and it actually came out pretty good. Good color. And that's pretty close to the original color on that. Awesome. Ross, do you have any project vehicles at the moment? Define project, because <laughs> somehow everything turns into a project. Well, something something not running for an extended period of time, no. just things you're tweaking as you're using them. No, so I live in an apartment with no garage and house my quad at my parents' house, so the projects have uh the projects are no longer. This quad is new to you? Yeah, yeah. So I picked up a scrambler Polaris, a well, Polaris Scrambler, an eight fifty in January. And this was after having a Kawasaki brute force for 13 years. So went from, you know, a 650, which is actually a 633cc V-twin with dual carburetors and uh, basically everything on the machine replaced at some point because it had broken or worn out to a 2013 Scrambler 850, which has fuel injection and electronic fuel injection and power steering. And it was like, it, the jump was crazy. Um, and it's got Fox shocks from the factory and there's a few things here and there that it, it needs tinkering with. Um, for whatever reason, the airbox just continually clogs with mud. There's like, it, it's just forever clogging itself. So I need to figure out a way to prevent that from happening, whether that is a snorkel or some kind of lid to seal it even more. Um, and the, I didn't know quads could get check engine lights, and that was a fun thing to find out. <laughs> so need to sort out why that came on a couple times. But 
Yeah, the quad is new. I've uh, well, new-ish. I mean, it's seven years old, which by you know quad standards is leaps and bounds newer than what I had before that. Um, but yeah, it's it's wild how far tech and suspension and chassis development has come on the ATV side of things, even just over the six-year or seven-year period that separated the old quad from the new-to-me quad. So, yeah, it's it's great. And I'm hopefully riding this weekend, which will also be great because private off-road parks have reopened. So where do you ride? Do you have public riding areas around you? or uh... no. no, I live on uh, isolated island from hell for the off-road world. So I'm in, I live in the southwestern mo- most uh, portion of Connecticut. So oh, yeah, you got nothing around here. <laughs> to go anywhere decent. So Massachusetts has a few state parks, and they are they range from you could run it on you know a two-wheel drive sport quad on track tires without issue to you need to be four-wheel drive, front locker, you know, four low just to make it up a couple obstacles and a surprising number of dirt bikes actually show up at those parks. But my, the two people I ride most with are my dad and my brother who both have side-by-sides and Massachusetts outlawed side-by-sides, anything over anything over 50 inches wide or 999 pounds is, has been outlawed from the trails. And I mean, even the smallest Polaris razor is still thousand pounds. So, did they call this, that conservation or were they calling that they, conservation? Yeah, they called it conservation and um, to preserve, there's a bunch of like endangered, um, you know, bugs and, and creatures like that. And they did it to prevent uh, like man-made erosion right, right? for whatever, you know, and I understand it for the weight side of things, but the width doesn't make as much sense because, you know, arbitrary. You're arbitrary. Gonna t- yeah. Now, can you, can, so. can, you, can you take, like, Jeeps and 4x4s off-road? Locally or on the on those um, in the Massachusetts state, state parks you're okay, asking? Okay, okay. This is in the state parks you can't these are, Yeah. Oh, okay. So, okay. so these are, um, there's Beartown State Forest, which I don't know anybody who has actually seen a bear there. Um, <laughs> there's October Mountain and then Pittsfield and then a few in the East Coast. And they are all dirt bike, dual sport, enduro, and ATV only at this point. So, you know, the quad I could take there, but I don't have anybody to go with. <laughs> so that's the only quote unquote legal, um, you know, state and government backed riding locales that are within three hours or so. And then there's a few out in Pennsylvania in the Poconos, but they are. I mean, you could run them in two-wheel drive with your eyes closed, which on the quads, four-wheel drive machines is only interesting for so long. And then everything else is private. You know, there's there's nothing in Connecticut whatsoever. But in Pennsylvania, there's just outside of the Poconos, um, there's Lost Trails, which is in Scranton and is pretty great. And we go there frequently. Then there's Roush Creek, which is one of the most famous you know, off-roading places in the Northeast and a new place popped up called Anthracite Outdoor, which is massive and like the freaking wild west of off-roading. Anything goes. It's crazy. I, I was talking last night um, to Zach Bowman and Chris Tracy on our podcast. Like I pulled a quad off the trailer once and a guy pulled out of an enclosed trailer next to me an Ultra 4 buggy and was like, yeah, I'm just here for testing. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Have fun. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a weird, unfortunate area to to live in for the off road enthusiast. Uh, quite honestly, that's out here. There are places to ride, but you're going to haul it a ways to do anything other than you know dirt roads. Yeah, mm-hmm. un, un, unimproved, unmaintained roads are basically what you have. I, I was very fortunate when I. We're going back probably 35 years. But uh, when I was in the Army, uh, I was stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington. And at that time, I think it's changed now, but at that time, all the tank trails and the training areas were open. As long <laughs> as they were not doing maneuvers, you could 
go anywhere on all of Fort Lewis and the Rainier training area was all just go wherever you want. There were no gates. There were no prohibitions. Every once in a while at M1 Abram would be on the other side of the hill. But, you know, other than that, you you were able to do whatever you wanted. So I really enjoyed, I had an XL600R and a Boltaco and had a lot of fun on the trails. There was nothing terribly challenging because it was all places you could fit a tank, but it was still... You're riding in one one tank track. Yeah, it, it, it was it was great fun. And living out in Idaho, like the majority of Idaho's public land, mm-hmm. there's, there's a great opportunity. And I didn't have a dirt bike or a four wheeler out there, but I had friends that did. So I got to be good friends with the family that owned the local dealership. And on the weekend, they'd go to the motocross track and go out trail riding and stuff. And I got to, I got to glom on and be a mooch and go with them. So it was, uh, I, I think that's one of the biggest problems is there's just no, unless you live in like Colorado, my friend Jim, who's Jimbo's been on the podcast a long time ago. We have to have him on again, but uh, uh, he lives out in Pueblo, Colorado. And the pictures that he sends of oh, man. going out in his Rubicon and doing the national or the continental divide or taking his dirt bike and, you know, or his dual sport bike and going up in the hills and, it's heartbreaking when you just don't have those kind of capabilities and you end up, it's kind of like for about 12 years, my wife and I had jet skis. And after a while we realized we were going in a circle in a lake that we'd seen before. Mm-hmm. And it just stopped being fun. If you, if you're down there with, you know, six or eight other people, it's great fun. If it's mm-hmm. just two of you, by the time it's lunchtime, you're like, yeah, okay, we can be done. Let's go back to the condo. Cause right. Just, right. Yeah, it makes you super envious of people who live in in Utah or even up in Maine, you know, North Country, Maine, where they have basically endless trails. And you can ride straight from the street right onto the trail and then do hundreds of miles on the trail, never see another soul and see gorgeous scenery and then just get back on tarmac and ride home. In, uh, In Michigan, once you get north of the 45th parallel, it gets pretty good. West side of the state's got a bunch. Uh, and then in the UP where all the snowmobile trails are in the winter, those are then you can, everyone rides, you know, quads and side by sides mm-hmm. and dirt bikes up there in the summer. So, um, yeah, it's just, you know, living in Metro Detroit and you go for a, you know, take a compass with a 60 mile radius around, around it. And it's, you know, it's, it's urban jungle. Mm-hmm. Um, once you get outside of that, it opens up a little bit, but it really is once you get north of, I want to say that's grayling at the 45th parallel. And I should know that being from living in Michigan almost all my life, but whatever, <laughs> everyone yeah, look at, look on a map. You'll see where it is. So. Yep. Uh, years ago, you were thinking about uh, snowmobile trails. Uh, years ago, I tried to uh, arrange a trip. There was a company that did snowmobile safaris in Alaska. Ooh. So you'd, oh. you'd leave out of Fairbanks and you'd take the rivers up through the wilderness in the wintertime and all the little, basically the, the fishing lodges in the summer that are on the rivers, in order to stay open in the wintertime, they open up for snowmobilers. Mm. So they arrange all of your lodging and you never are outside overnight. You're there in time for dinner. So you pull up on your snowmobile to this lodge, you get off, you go inside, you warm up. Here's dinner. Here's your bed. Here's your shower. The next day you get back on the snowmobile, you take off, you go up on a trail or you follow the the frozen river farther up into it. And it was like a, it was like a six or seven day. That sounds amazing. uh, Trip, basically a big loop on the, all of it, east of uh the national park because you can't really ride in the park but uh it i really wanted to do my wife and i were really excited we tried to make it work it was really expensive and i was a school teacher at the time so trying to arrange it so that we could do it over my winter break or spring break it just i we couldn't make it work and i never Mm -hmm. ended up doing it and i think they eventually i don't know if they 
do it anymore. That company doesn't anymore. But There's probably something similar. So in that same vein, my wife and I had been planning a trip to Iceland for September for the first into the second week of September. It was like a five-day trip, nothing crazy. And one of the things we were planning on doing is they have ATV tours where you ride on glaciers. And it hubs out of Reykjavik and you basically just it's nothing to the extent like that snowmobile trip. You basically have like four hours. They take you on a tour and then you loop back. Um, but I, I tend to think if that's available for even just like a casual tourist, like my wife has never ridden a quad before other than sitting on the back of mine going around like, you know, a grass lawn. And they said it's totally beginner friendly. So if that exists, there's probably something like much more in depth and, and much more focused and long-term for snowmobiling, and that's which I've a, never done. I've never been Ar- on a snowmobile. Is that like the Arctic truck uh, tour? Uh, not quite. This was, I think like 150 bucks a person for three or four hours, Arctic trucks I looked at and oh. it was, I think it was like 1400 bucks a day just for the rental. I was like, uh. Okay, that's that's like the budget for the whole trip. <laughs> Can't do that. Yeah, so this, uh, yeah, the Icelandic word Ventanakukukukukukukukul. That one, uh, glacier, glacier super <laughs> jeep tour, starting at one hundred and thirty-two dollars, one hundred thirty-two euros per mm-hmm. adult. Sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were going to do it on quads just because the rest of our trip was supposed to be kind of like I, you guys know Robbie DeGraff from Hooniverse. Mm-hmm. So when he was in Iceland, he rented a Suzuki Jimny and basically just bombed around the island and like lived out of it for 10 or 12 days or something. And we weren't going to do anything that extreme, but it was going to be something in that vein. So it was kind of a, a split trip, but that trip has since been uh, squashed. Yeah. Uh, we thought about going to Iceland last year because there was some super cheap airline flying out of Detroit uh, where it was like, I don't know. 250 bucks a person from Detroit to, to Iceland. But then you realize once you get into Iceland, it's like, Oh, you think, you think going to someplace like Montreal is expensive. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> you know? How even, about a $75 even, hamburger? Yeah, exactly. Uh, like, you know, and, and in, in Montreal, everything's discounted 40% for us to Canadian money, but then add a hundred percent for, you know, what things cost in Montreal. And I'm like, oh, okay, well that's why we went to Montreal. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Well, uh, getting back to four-wheelers, uh, you said you've done a lot of side-by-side stuff. Um, yes, sir. What do you like better? Do, do, would you rather be holding onto a steering wheel or a set of handlebars? Handlebars. Not even a question. You know, it's interesting. Chris last night asked the same question because Zach, who, if you guys haven't had him on, try to get him on. He can talk endlessly about about dirt bikes and dual sports and motorcycles. And he was saying that he has more fun on that at low speeds than he's ever had in any car at all. And Chris asked, you know, if the quad is more fun than off-roading in a truck. And it is there's, and it translates exactly to the side by side. Um, and I, I kind of equate it to, you know, the first time when you're a kid and you take the training wheels off and you're free and it's like your first feeling of freedom it never gets old on the quad. Whereas in the side-by-side, there's that aspect of protection and enclosure that you don't have on a four-wheeler. And, you know, there is the aspect of like the danger side of things, but the adrenaline that comes from the ATVs just isn't the same as what you get in a side-by-side. And I'm sure people will disagree. Uh, There's, you know you could probably get a good burst of adrenaline from a 200 horsepower side by side, which you can just walk into a dealership and buy. Um, but I know, I know Jeff Glucker's done some, some demos with Honda. And, yeah. He, he and, wanted a talent and, talent. Yep. and, and it looked like he had a lot of fun. I have to agree. Um, not doing a lot of off-roading. The analogy I would make is the difference between, uh, my Can-Am spider and a, uh, Polaris slingshot. I rode a sling or, you know, test drove a slingshot and it just 
felt like a Miata with a really crappy interior and bad traction. I mean, that's yeah. If you're going to spend 25 grand on something that you're going to sit in behind a steering wheel, why not just buy the best thing you can buy for 25 grand? Right. And, and, and I, I was like, and I was like, Oh, this is really going to cut into, into, you know, spider sales. I'm like, it's a totally kind of like side by sides to me look like they have much more replaced dune buggies than, than quads. I mean, Volkswagen powered dune buggies used to be the way to mm-hmm. bomb through the woods or go to the dunes and stuff. And they're just obsolete. They, yep. they, they don't have as sophisticated suspension, the, you know, 1930s technology for the, for the motor. It, and they're, they're just, that's really what went away when right. side by sides came in. I will completely agree with that. The only manner in which they do replace the ATVs truly is in sales. The side-by-side sales have skyrocketed compared to those of just traditional four-wheelers. Yeah. But that, ha- that has as much to do with you can use it as an excuse, as an excuse to bring your whole family around. Absolutely. Just going and doing something yourself. True. And I just saw, excuse me, just a day or two ago, I looked at the latest copy of uh, Power Sports Business Magazine, and they had last month's uh, demographic breakdown of side-by-side purchasers. Mm-hmm. The number one group of side-by-side purchasers by a wide margin, not even baby boomers, the silent generation, their parents mm. buy like wow. half of the side-by-side. Some of it is it's really expensive to buy one. So you've got to be, you know, yes. there's not a lot of millennials out there and Gen Xers that can afford one. Right. You also need to have property to, to use one. And there are very few younger people who have enough land. Mm-hmm. And if you are an older person and you do have property, you're not going to go out on a four by four. You're not going to go out, walk it. You're not going to be riding a dirt bike. You can get in something, shut the door mm-hmm. and, you know, run your fence line, check on your cattle, do whatever mm-hmm. you're going to do in relative comfort and safety without breaking bones and, you know, right. being laying somewhere with a, with a fractured hip. So it, it makes sense. I was really surprised though. Side by sides skew so much older than I thought they did. <laughs> I need to think about that before I tell you if I'm surprised or not. Um, yeah, I can tell you. Yeah, that's that. That is interesting. I'd, I'd say it's definitely an older demographic in general buying public, just from what I've seen in my experience, than any side. You know, any ATV or or dirt bike buying demographic. Now I realize the 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 really hardcore sports models are probably skew a lot younger, but I'm definitely, I also think that the vast majority of side-by-sides that are being sold are for, you know, more utility use, hauling work use. Yeah. You know, uh, there's not a, not a turf company out there that does not have a bunch of side-by-sides that. uh, Right. Right. And truthfully, they are great for that. Like even, you know, my dad and my brother, not so much, but in the past they have used it for lawn work and for, you know, for factory work, just hauling stuff back and forth around a parking lot when it's it's easier to do that. Um, Which you're not going to do with a Maverick or an RZR or something. Definitely, definitely not. I mean, my, my dad does have a razor and it, it, you know, has limited hauling ability, but if you wanted to hook a plow up to it, or if you wanted to hook a trailer up to it, it could tow you know, 1200 pounds or so. Not sure I'd want to. And if you did want to do that, you could go down and buy one of those Mahindra Roxers and have like a real work vehicle, but then you're compromising yourself otherwise. Yeah. Or you just buy a used pickup or. Yeah, seriously. Buy a TJ Wrangler and call it. Yeah. The uh, speaking of which, uh, that's the other replacement I see a side by side for is people spend all this money on a on a brand new jeep or a semi new jeep and then go spend $30,000 to outfit it to go off-roading and rock crawling i'm like mm-hmm. why don't you just buy this you know $18,000 uh side by side spend mm-hmm. $6,000 on a few things and there you go 
And, 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 and when you roll it, you know, you're not damaging right. all the body work, right? So I grew up in a household where my dad had a lifted Wrangler. He had a YJ in 89 and it was, it was built. It was a built truck and he got rid of it truthfully, partially because it was always broken and partially because at the end of the day on the trail, if you didn't trailer the Jeep, you had to drive it home and the quad, you know, if you break it, you drag it to the parking lot, throw it on the trailer, and then still drive home in comfort. Do you see a similarity between the evolution of quads and side-by-sides? Because it started out that the first quads were the, you know, obviously they switched Mm -hmm. from three to four wheels in there. But most of the time, it was like, here's uh, an ATC or a, you know, Mm -hmm. a, a TRX 125 or whatever. And they were like, it's a thing. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden, it was like, well, you can buy it with racks on it. You can buy it to go hunting. Oh, mm-hmm. here's one with more suspension. And right. and, and it kind of split into utility and toy sport. And then it kind of split again to hardcore utility, kind of a do-everything. Mm-hmm. It's got some racks, but it still has some performance to it. Or, you know, real racing. Right. And, and I kind of see that same thing going on with side-by-sides that you've got the, you know, the ones with the pickup beds and the, that really are not all that right. exciting to drive. It, They're there strictly to be utilitarian. But if you need to get a deer out of the woods, that's a really good thing right. to have, you know. And on the other side, you've got some some of the, you know, some of the new stuff has, you know, 18 and a half miles of suspension travel, and, <laughs> right? you know, yeah. um, turbocharged or supercharged engines and stuff. It, it, yeah. Turbo three cylinder Yamahas with sequential gearboxes. <laughs> you know, you're not about to pull a deer out of the woods with that. There's no bed space. You can yeah. maybe fit a spare tire in there. Um, yeah, no, the side-by-side evolution has definitely been, it, it mimics that of the, of the ATV world, but, at an exponential rate compared to it. You know, ATVs, when I came into the ATV world, you had four by fours, which had racks and four wheel drive and you had sport quads and that was it. And then slowly things started to evolve. First, there was electronic fuel injection for some, and then there was power steering. And then there began to have this crossover section where there's, you know, sporty four by fours like the scrambler I have, but there haven't really been that many major developments in the ATV world in the last call it 10 years, other than the widespread, you know, introduction of EFI and and EPS. And a lot lot more larger multi-cylinder motors. Oh yeah. I mean, you can get a thousand CC uh, V twin from, most of the manufacturers and those you can't, you can get an 800 or a 750. Yeah. Um, but the side-by-side market basically just like got lit on fire by sales. So first there, there, there were the John Deere's and then there was the Yamaha Rhino, which was not a sporty vehicle. It was a very utilitarian vehicle that could also just happen to do stuff on the trails and keep up with quads, you know, and, and even act kind of like a Jeep and then Polaris launched the the Razor, um, the RZR, and that that really changed the world. It it did. It changed the recreational, you know. Yeah, that was really market. the first one that people stopped getting, you know, uh, sand rails in mm-hmm. Southern California and started saying, mm-hmm. "I'm buying one of those instead because it just, right. you know, it's it's smaller, it's more efficient, it's more fun, and." It was expensive, but it was a relative expensive, right? Because when they mm-hmm. first came out, they were what fourteen, less 14, than that, sixteen thousand. The first they, Razor eight hundred, oh, the like narrow, grand, right? They were, I think, they were like ten five. Okay, they were, yeah, yeah. but they didn't have, you know, there was no power steering. They were right. fifty inch wide models. It was like as basic as basic was. It was a two. It was like a two seater. Yeah, just yeah. super basic. But yeah. even so, you put wide A arms and wide axles on it with some paddles, and it's a great sand machine. And you don't have to do anything else compared to building a sand rail. Like what's upkeep on a, <laughs> on a Volkswagen powered or LS yeah. powered sand rail. Yeah. How do you get that serviced and maintained and everything if you're not doing it yourself? Whereas you can walk into a player stealer, buy a machine, break it on the trail the next day and then drive it back and have them fix it. 
Yeah, you're just replacing drive belts all the time. Other than that, oh god. <laughs> oh, sorry about the curse. Didn't mean for that. But yes, um, Polaris drive belts known to have problems. Yeah, ask Chris <laughs> I was just watching the uh, uh, the Top Gear where they were doing Baja and one, and mm-hmm. they were like 24 miles in, and guess what? They busted a drive belt. Yeah, CVTs are kind of um, double edged sword. No, so for off roading for. For a lot of the extreme rock crawling, they're kind of great because, you know, you get as much power as you want whenever you want it for out of a CVT. But there's so much that can go wrong. Like, well, the second you feel a belt start to slip, your heart just sinks. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm really surprised that that uh, Can-Am came out with the the new Riker three-wheeler the mm-hmm. uh, street trike uh, has a CVT and I'm thinking, wow, how, I don't know how you make that last at highway speeds doing 60 and 70 miles an hour with a 900 CC mm-hmm. engine for somebody who's going like, I'm going to go touring for a week and go to the, you know, go see the Rockies. They've got to, be doing some kind of special magic with that or it's worse than I've heard but I haven't heard anybody say they they've had problems with them well for the prices that Can-Am charges you'd hope they're that they're they're actually doing their R&D yeah well I'm 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 really plugged into the spider community and that makes me neither a basher nor a fanboy because they've gotten a lot of things right They've gotten a lot of things not right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a couple of years there that people as spiders would just go into limp mode for no reason at all. Oh boy. Or um, they had the 2013s, the RT, the touring model. They were originally going to go to the three cylinder inline motor in 2013. Mm-hmm. They didn't have it ready. So they put the Rotax V twin in a revised chassis for one year, ran so hot that it was boiling the gasoline in the tank. Which Rotax is it? That's the the 990 that the uh, Prilly used. Yeah. yeah. I yeah, think that's used. a derivative of the same Rotax that's in my brother's Can-Am 1000. He's got a Commander. That's his side-by-side. I think the engines are closely rela- related. Yeah. they. I I like my Spider. I, I just a couple episodes ago was talking to Eric and Garrett and said, every time I get it on it, I'm like, this is exactly the vehicle that I want. I mm-hmm. I don't want a newer one. I don't want, you know, all the new ones are kind of cruiser-ish with your feet out in front of you and stuff. Mine was one of the last best that kind of had a sport bike ergonomics to it. And it, it, you were saying when you get on a quad, you have that feeling of being a kid without training wheels for the first mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. I have to agree the one thing I've learned to love about motorcycles and my spider is that panoramic view. You don't have an A pillar. You don't have a roof. You have nothing breaking your vision mm-hmm. around you for 300. Unobstructed. Yep. Yes. And that is, I never get tired of that. The fact that when I'm riding down the street, I can look down and I can look at the contact patch. I can see the, the, the pavement or the dirt under my feet mm-hmm. is just to me, uh, it's kind of the same thing, uh, the difference between a, a jet ski and a boat. A mm-hmm. boat, you have to climb in the boat and climb out of the boat if you want to get in the water. On a jet ski, that is a very much more fluid definition right. of am I in the water or out of the water? I had a, my first uh, jet ski was an old 500 wave jammer, the one person Yamaha 500. Oh, yeah. Six and a half feet long. So you're, when you were sitting there, your, your trays were full of water. You, you were almost up to your knees if you were sitting off the back of it. You were kind of always wet, you know, and motorcycles, dirt bikes, those things, you kind of have that fully exposed dirty. feeling of if I put my foot down, it's going to hit ground that's moving mm-hmm. very rapidly underneath me. I need to pay attention here. Whereas... I haven't driven side-by-sides much, but you kind of have this feeling of I'm 
in a really basic car. Yes. It's very capable, much so. It's capable of going places that, you know, I wouldn't be able to go otherwise, but it's not that much right. different from, you know, a car with a... Right, or a Jeep. Yeah. And Jeep. one of the great things about off-roading is that, and this applies to everything, but even more so to the ATVs and dirt bikes, if you're somewhere truly beautiful, you can stand up and look around and get a complete view of everything like around you and that you've just traversed and that's ahead of you. And in the side-by-sides, you're locked in, you know, like my brother's Canon has five point harnesses. You can't move. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, and for the same reason that you get filthy on two wheels and on a quad, you know, you're completely immersed in what you're doing and in your surroundings versus the side-by-sides really do limit that. And I, and I like that feeling of there's nothing between me and my environment. Now, same. if you're going past a, uh, uh, a pig farm, there's no rolling <laughs> up the windows. There's no, let's put the air conditioning on and shut the windows and, you know, get through this. It's like, you're going to experience everything. And if it's hot, you're going to get hot. And if it's raining, you're going to get wet. And That's why it's great. And, and, but when it's all over, you feel like you've really been there. You've experienced mm-hmm. ev- all the sensations of whatever uh, environment you were going through. Side by sides, I think you lose that a little bit. And once you get substantial, into, once you get into really a is. Jeep with, you know, even if you've got the doors off of it, you're, you're putting a whole lot of barriers between you and the environment that mm-hmm. you're going through. Mm-hmm. What uh, what kind of gear are you rolling with on your ATV these days? So when I started, it was helmet, and that was it. As of late, you mean like physical body coverage gear? Yeah, like you oh wear, boy. are you wearing are you wearing yeah, armor? So, or do you just wear jackets and pants? And- so I wear I wear high socks, high boots, coveralls. I had back surgery a couple of years ago, so I'm wearing a kidney like a full kidney brace, um, full full you know. Um, I can't remember the name of the brand, but it, it's a, actually motorcycle, like Kevlar chest protector, um, you know. Uh, like Elite Brace? What's that? The, the the neck brace? I don't have a neck brace, but that is the brand of chest protector and kidney protector that I have. Okay. Then, obviously, you know, full up-to-spec helmet and goggles and everything, so... That's one of the other things, like it's, it gets so hot, (laughs) you know, you can't go fast enough to not be sweating with all that stuff on. Um, but you know, it's price to pay for having fun. I'd rather sweat a little bit and drink an extra Gatorade than, you know, come home covered with strawberries. Well, I've actually ridden through strawberry and blueberry fields up in Maine and it's amazing and it's gorgeous and stunning. And then you look around everywhere and it's like, it looks like you drove through blood <laughs> it's like oh I, I meant like strawberry like road rash oh like, yeah go, no going out um, and- you know when i started riding i was like 14 and it was fun and if i like i had no fear and now i'm kind of like well if i get hurt i can't go to work if i can't yeah. go to work then there's other problems <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. so you know well, it most was, people are still just helmet and that's it when i was in the army i mean when i was out riding it was my issue boots and a pair of heavy leather gloves and jeans and a t-shirt and my street helmet without the visor on it. That's, that was, you know, the extent of my specialized off-road gear. There are a couple of times that, you know, you go down to the gravel and you, and you got bare arms. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's why people don't do this. <laughs> right. Right. And and it's shocking. I mean, if, even Connecticut, we don't have uh, helmet laws for the street. You know, and you'll see people cruising at 85 miles per hour with no helmets and in cutoffs and shorts. Like, uh, I just I don't even want to be near you in case something goes wrong. I'm sorry. I find anything over about 70 somewhat uncomfortable with a full face helmet just because the amount hmm. of wind blast that you're getting. Interesting. You know, never it, considered that. I've only my so I've only had this quad out a couple times and I apologize for interrupting No, no. But on my, on my old quad and I, I don't run full visor, full face, but I wear, you know, a motorcycle helmet with right. full, full goggles that fill the mm-hmm. whole thing. And that 
that brute force ran up to 68 uh, with over 68 on the indicator with oversized tires. So probably about 71 and it was extremely, extremely unpleasant. And we did it for eight miles. And by the time I was done, like by the time we came to a trail where we slowed down, it was, I was exhausted like physically and, and my head <laughs> like, felt like somebody was just hammering nonstop. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine imagine. being some one of these guys that's doing eighty ninety, and you know they've got wraparound sunglasses on, no earplugs, and no helmet. I'm like, hey, if you live in a non-helmet state, your choice. Uh, I think it's stupid. I also think it's no fun. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. It, I, I I don't see where the enjoyment is in that, but to uh, each their own. Yes, mm-hmm. I think it's probably a good place to wrap yeah. it up. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks, Ross, for coming on and tell us again about the the podcast and where sure. to, to read your writing. Well, first of all, thank you guys for having me. If you guys would like to come on our show at some point and, and talk bikes, I am happy to do so. Chris is so-so on, on two wheels, but I'm always happy to talk bikes. <laughs> My still relatively new podcast is called the Off the Road Again podcast, and it is also on the Hooniverse Podcast Network. Now, you guys are every week, right? We are. Yeah, we are. We, we, I think it's about a year and a half ago. We went to once a month because it just started being more work than fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, we wanted it to be fun. My writing is on Hooniverse and Everyday Driver and eventually other places, <laughs> hopefully. And yeah, I should have a, a Land Cruiser piece up within the next, I don't know, whenever. You and, I have, you and I are going to have competing Land Cruiser stories yeah. on Hooniverse, right? We should run them on the same day. We should. Just <laughs> Jeff would love that. You should do like the point-counterpoint with uh, Jane Curtin and Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, no, I, we probably have a lot of the same points, so it's just point and point. <laughs> yeah, point and pile on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, again, thank you guys for having me. Okay. I'm glad I was able to join. So, if you go to Hooniverse, you can... Check out their podcast, our podcast. They actually have a link at the bottom of the main page for podcasts. And considering there is no Hooniverse podcast anymore, you'll see us, you'll see Ross's podcast, and you can find everything in one spot. So thank you very much for coming on. You're welcome back anytime. And uh, we will see you all next month. Awesome. Thanks, guys. So long.